when you're working in the emergency department and you're seeing these sick people, what's their response when you come in your wheelchair? Okay, this is the coolest thing. So we're seven years, seven years as a doctor, and then I had two years as a student in the hospitals. Never has a patient said anything to me, ever, not once. Thousands of patients now. Would you believe like that's crazy? I thought even one, and I think that shows that our community is further ahead than the profession. <laughs> These days I've had patients try to seduce me and ask for my autograph. <laughs> <laughs> the famous but... Dr. Palipana. <laughs> Kia ora and welcome to Revolving Door Syndrome. I'm Dr. Nina Sue, your friendly neighbourhood paediatric and emergency doctor. My day job is helping sick kids get better. But lately, I felt like I'm pushing a revolving door round and round in circles. I patch these kids up, send them back to the environment that made them sick in the first place, and they come right back through those hospital doors again. Together with my partner Connor, we've created this podcast to deep dive into the reasons for our broken systems, and perhaps find some real solutions. This podcast was brought to you by Medworld, and made in association with the School of Medicine, University of Auckland. So welcome to Revolving Door Syndrome. On this episode, we've got Dr. Dinesh Palipana. He's an emergency doctor. He's a disability advocate, an author, used to be a lawyer, all of these things. And he just happens to have been a survivor of a spinal cord injury and he's in a wheelchair, but he's able to do all these amazing things. And I'm really excited to have him on board. So welcome to Revolving Door Syndrome, Dinesh. Hey, thanks for having yeah. me. I've heard some stories about you in the past, about how you got to where you are at. But I can think, I guess for the listeners, I really want to dive in a bit into how everything happened. Where did this all start? Because I understand you were a lawyer first, and then you did med mm. school, and then some pretty tragic events happened for you on the way. Yeah, I'll do a little summary of life <laughs> from embryo to embryo now. Embryo to now, very good. <laughs> Embryo, it's actually a thing because my me and my partner just made six embryos Oh, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. It's just, they're chilling in the fridge until <laughs> we're ready for them to hatch. Amazing. Probably not all six. <laughs> Hopefully not all at once. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But no, I was, so I was just driving around today and I love where we live, right? Because everything is amazing, like the road, the weather and the hospital that I get to work in and... I am so grateful for the simple stuff. And a reason for that is because I wasn't born here. I was born in Sri Lanka and I lived in Sri Lanka through through a civil war. It lasted three decades more and there was a lot of poverty. Although my family was reasonably well off, there was a lot of struggle and violence. And I saw a lot of that when I was a kid. Like I've seen people being burnt alive. I've seen people being shot. I've seen people, body parts on the streets. I've seen all sorts of stuff. So that was when I was a kid. And I saw a lot of poverty as well. I went to school with kids. They didn't have shoes. They didn't have homes really. So I just saw that part of the world and grew up in amongst that. And even the simple stuff like I remember when I was a little boy, we had to boil the water before we drank it. So when I opened the tap, 
and pour myself someone usually pours it for me <laughs> these days but i uh, grab a glass of water i just think man this is, i just get to drink water when i want which you don't think much of but those days i remember running around outside coming in and you have to wait for the water to boil and for it to cool down before you could drink it so even simple things like that i just have a huge sense of gratitude and perspective for so we moved to australia on my 10th birthday then i grew up here lo- loved it ever since then and when i finished school i really didn't know what i wanted to do and again i think this is one of the most important things for all of us is purpose and why why do we do what we do because we need that why i think and of particular relevance i don't remember who said it now but it was once said that he who has a why to live can bear almost anyhow so i think you really need a why and i didn't find that early on in life and so i was thinking about what to do and i just thought i'll go to law school i'll become a lawyer i went to law had depression when i was in law school and depression is one of the i read recently that there was a investigation into the death of 16 of our colleagues in australia my goodness from depression and what kind of time period and over two or three years wow. but that's they picked like specific 16 because of the circumstances but there've been more like I've known more over the last few years i i know of people that have been colleagues who've gone through this who've survived fortunately so i went through it early on when i was in law school to my late teens early 20s and it was one of the hardest things i've ever had to do the spinal cord injury it's it's been paralyzing but i actually feel like i can do anything today whereas when i had depression i was really paralyzed i had panic disorder i had anxiety disorder i had you know i, I had agoraphobia so it was so bad and difficult but it was the best thing that ever happened to me and the reason for that is i started seeing a doctor this doctor was incredible the doctor it was gp and this gp someone told me once that our job as a doctor is not to treat a disease that a person has our job as a doctor is to treat a person who has a disease and those two things are very different so when i started seeing my gp and we started working through the depression i actually in retrospect realized that i didn't even realize that he was actually treating depression because he did so many other things for me along the way it's like okay how are you going to manage law school here's the letter that you need to for the time off or whatever so he did so many other things to keep my life going and when i recovered from depression my world had changed and one of the things i always say is quote to quote my mum in that when you help one person you may not change the world but you will change the world for them and so i that really inspired me to become a doctor and that's how i found purpose that's how i found my why and I finished law got into medical school had a car accident in medical school i was halfway through and on the 31st of january 2010 my car aquaplaned on the highway and i sustained a spinal cord injury lost the use of my fingers and everything below the chest and within those seconds my life changed i spent 
seven or eight months in hospital, another four years just rehabilitating, recovering, and then came back to medical school. It was a challenge. Busted my butt. Yeah. What was that like? Like how easy or how hard was it for you to get back to medical school? So I've been thinking about this a lot and it makes me think of disability as well. So I think that a large part of it were the biggest challenge was attitude. And it was not just attitude from the outside world, but it's attitude from me. Because even I had doubts. I'm like, how will people see me? How am I going to do this and that? How will I get around the hospital? I had all this stuff in my head and so did other people. And they asked me that. They're like, how are you going to do this? How are you going to do that? Will the patients take you seriously? All that jazz. I feel like most doctors, not all doctors, but I feel like lots of doctors, including myself, probably have a significant amount of imposter syndrome at the best of times. Like I, it must be just like on top of that as well. Yeah. And that's the funny thing. So I didn't realize that until later. So when we actually started diving into it and when I started doing stuff, I realized, oh my gosh, like all this stuff wasn't a barrier at all. I can examine a patient, I can use my stethoscope, and I can do all this stuff. And so once we started troubleshooting a bit and working through it, I found that I could do all of these things. And with some of it, I could do it faster and better than other people as well. Nice. <laughs> just because we, yeah, just because we we figured we optimized some Refined some it, refined it. Refined it. It was, it turned out a lot better than I imagined or anyone imagined. And so I graduated finally and and I had to fight for my job. But here we are. I'm now seven years down the track. I work as a registrar in the ED and life is good. Amazing. Amazing. I was wondering if I could ask you a bit more about your time having been in the hospital. Do you think that experience that you had with your spinal cord injury has affected like how like you practice as a doctor? So this is a very timely question for today. Before we started this podcast, you and I were having a chat and you asked me what I've been doing. (laughs) Uh, Over my experience as a patient was terrible. It was really confronting In the particular rehabilitation unit I was at, there was a significant lack of dignity for patients. There was, there were so many problems. So even though I love going to work as a doctor now, I hate being a patient still. And I think there's a loss of, you just lose control. You completely lose lose autonomy. Exactly. And you're, you're disempowered and scary. And so Over the years in this particular place, we've been trying to do bits and pieces of work to try and improve the experience for patients. But two weeks ago, I heard from a patient who was going through a really hard time in there and the family were in tears. Then I kept hearing more stories, someone being left in the bathroom for 40 minutes without any help. And then there were other concerning stories like allegations of sexual abuse and procedures being done without consent and all this stuff. I couldn't keep turning a, I couldn't not do anything because what are we here for? We're here for the patients. That's, That's our duty. So I had to, I had to weigh up whether, because this job is something that I work so hard for and this, I put everything on the line to get here. 
But then I would have had to put everything on the line to speak up about it. So I did. And it turned up in the media and it's turned up in the parliament this week, which has been discussed widely. And the government's government's doing something about it. So that's this week. All that came out. What do you think they're going to do? They're just going to change the spinal unit entirely. Is the plan at this stage? I I'm not sure how things will evolve. But to dig into the fundamentals of that a bit, we're talking about the most vulnerable people in our health system. We have patients who are completely paralyzed who can't move arms or legs, who might be on a ventilator, who can't speak. And if these patients, the things that came out in the media are like laying in their own feces for a while or laying in other people's feces or being left naked in front of other patients, like that kind of stuff. So when we think about these things happening to the most vulnerable people, in our health system who spend months in the in in these wards we need to think about doing things differently and i went through this stuff and it was hard being a patient so i know that comparatively still in australia we have a better situation than some other countries in terms of what patients experience because of the infrastructure issues and the resourcing issues but still it was a terrible experience being a patient. So for myself and the vast majority of the people listening to this podcast, most of us will never experience what you've experienced. So I just want to dig deeper and just for you to just tell us exactly what was your life like at that time so we can start actually understanding why it's important that we look after our most vulnerable people. It was hell. <laughs> like I felt like I was in hell. Just think about nighttime, I'm laying in bed, I'm paralyzed, I can't move. I'm sharing a room with three other people. It's a dark old building from the 60s or 70s. You are just a matter of weeks, maybe a couple of months into this huge trauma and the lights go off. One of the patients across from you is drunk and angry. The other patient has some other problems and they're throwing urine at you and threatening to kill you. And you're just, you're trying to get through that. Like you're trying to not only deal with what's happened and hoping to God that there'll be a better day tomorrow, but all this stuff is happening around you. And uh, it was hell. I can't even begin to like imagine. I just remember like I, I did a job briefly in Eno's throat where we also covered neurosurgery at on night shifts and after hours. And I just remember doing these night shifts in the high dependency units, like the immediate post-op neurosurgical patients. And just a lot of them are unwell because they've had a brain bleed or brain cancer or something like that. And then just the little things that just don't make any sense, like me as a junior doctor having to go around and do a midnight round of blood tests on all these people at midnight. Things like that just don't make any sense. That's nowhere near a form of patient-centered care. Who wants to be woken up at midnight to be stabbed in the hand or the arm just for the convenience of doctors to have blood tests ready in the morning? It doesn't make any sense. If you could make three changes to the spinal unit or how spinal rehabilitation units are run, what would the top three things that you'd do? 
I think the Adelaide hospital has a good physical environment from what I read. One of the services in Adelaide and I've looked at places like Utah and Spalding in Boston. So I think the physical environment really matters. Again, you're spending months and months in this place, right? So to be sharing a space with three other people, to be sharing one bathroom, that's not cleaned, to not have a TV or something like that, it's not great. So some of these places have a single room with with your own bathroom and where families can stay as well because this not just affects the patient and you've got to get used to how to get back into the community, how to live together, how to do all that stuff. So I think the physical environment where it's at least somewhat home-like where you can do your bits is good. You even have to have consideration to other bits and pieces like, for example, with the spinal cord injury, for me, I can't control my body temperature anymore. So when it gets cold, I start to shiver and freeze. When it gets hot, I start to get warm. So even having something like climate control where someone can keep warm or hot is important. So there are lots of little bits and pieces about the environment and natural light, thinking of someone's sleep-wake patterns and all that jazz, super important. And then I think it's it's more than anything – So obviously you need the therapy and the medical care and whatever else, but you just need kindness and dignity. That's, that is the main thing. So if you have those ingredients um, and if you can streamline it so people can get home quicker, then I think that would be the magic. So do you think like a sort of more rehabilitation in the home kind of movement so that more of the rehabilitation can be done in home, in your own environment, in the community? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think trying to get people home quicker, provided they're safely rehabilitated, is, is useful as well. The interesting thing is like when we talked about that, I think in our professions, The technical side is obviously important, right? If we don't deliver excellent medical care, like that's a failing. So we need to be able to deliver excellent technical medical care. But it's about how the patient feels at the end. Because someone again once told me that people may not remember what you do for them, but they'll always remember how you make them feel. Absolutely. Yeah. They need to feel like they're part of the plans. They're part of the solutions. And it's a team sport. When we also think about the fundamental ethical duties that we have, right? Autonomy, not doing harm. Are we actually achieving those things with some of the ways we approach medicine? I don't know. So we really need to think deeply. And I think for us now is the time as a profession to go back to that. Did, when during the rehabilitation process, did you get much mental health support? I had none, but uh, I was lucky. I had my mom, I had friends, I had family. I never saw a professional for it. Was no. it offered? I don't remember, to be honest. Yeah. I don't remember. Yeah, you would have thought that mental health support would be something, it would be part of the package for something like that. But hopefully things change in that spe- that specific unit. That's the, that's the plan. <laughs> And when you went back to medical school, what was the reaction from classmates and professors or lecturers and stuff? Classmates. So my previous classmates were now five years after graduating. I think five would have been about five, four or five. I was so disappointed at at some of their attitudes because 
medicine being so hierarchical, they were the registrar and I was the student. And uh, there were some days when I was like, I just grit my teeth and keep going. Well, how did they it make hard. it hard? I think they like they just berated. So there was one in, in particular. It was the one that made the interns cry on ward rounds. So one that berated everyone. So it wasn't just targeted at me. But uh, so there, there was there, there was the one like that who who was a bully, and it was just hard because we were so close when we were in medical school and now suddenly I was the subject of that. What? That's crazy. And also yeah. if somebody's going to bully you for your disability or whatever, it just makes you wonder how they are like when their patients have disabilities. Uh, yeah, I saw what they were like with their patients too. Yeah. Then there were some who just, just ignored. Some who were like, I don't really hang out with medical students. Actually thinking back to that now, I'm like, wow, that's... Uh, pretty childish. Yeah. Because obviously you said that you spent a long time rehabilitating post-injury. What was the thing that made you get through it and was like, no, I do want to go back to medical school. What was that thing that helped you get there? I love it so much. <laughs> like I never, I love it. Like I, that's it. That's all it. I knew if I wouldn't, if I knew if that, if I didn't try it, I'd regret it for the rest of my life. So I didn't want to do that. And I just wanted to Amazing. try it. Yeah. But yeah, then there was some, so my, then there was my new classmates and they were all amazing. They were actually all amazing. Oh, Gen Z's, aren't they great? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they were so good that I just felt, actually, I haven't thought about that until we had this conversation, but they were really good and accepting. Lecturers mixed, but many good. There were many good, some pessimistic. So it was a mixed bag. Yeah. And I remember reading somewhere that there were some difficulties with getting a job. Is that right? Yeah. That was so frustrating because I finished medical school. I graduated. I did everything. And like, also, did I, you I do really well as well? Like, <laughs> Yeah, I did. I did well. And so now to say, nah, I'm like, why? I've done everything. Yep. So it was so frustrating and that was a bit of a fight, but finally got there in the end. And that was actually thanks to people standing up for me. That's why I feel I feel like I need to stand up for things because people stood up for me. What were the barriers to you getting a job? Bureaucracy, I think mainly. Yeah. It was actually bureaucracy. I see things often for our colleagues, whether they're going through mental health issues or whether they're going through medical issues. The bureaucracy is often makes things worse for people. That's for sure. Yes. <laughs> so we've talked about your experiences of how having a spinal cord injury affects how you see medicine. How does it affect your ability to perform as a doctor in any way? Does it even affect your ability to be a doctor? So I have a couple of thoughts on this. When I first, when I was going through my surgical rotations as an intern, we got to the end of the term and the surgeon was talking to me about how I did and marking off my paperwork. And he said, when I first heard that you were coming to our department, I was pessimistic and I had all these thoughts about how it wouldn't work. But he said that he was disappointed that he thought that way because by that point, his idea of what a doctor should be had changed. And so he said he'll think about it differently from there on in. And I, I love that. And I think when we think about medicine, right, like I was chatting to an emergency physician probably a year or two ago, and she said, you can't be an emergency physician unless you can put a chest tube in. And I'm like, okay, 
how many chest tubes have you done in the last five years? There are registrars struggling to tick off that chest tube box for their thing, right? So do we actually reduce and for medicine? Our listeners, for our listeners, a chest tube is what you might put in, say, a significant chest trauma from like a bad car crash or something like that, which doesn't happen that often. You exactly. know, car crashes happen, needing a chest tube doesn't happen that often. At all. Yeah. Is that what we actually reduce medicine down to? Because it's not, I think being a doctor is actually the cognitive activity of being one. My bosses in the emergency department have been way different. They've, they've tried to nurture me to the point where I can get to team lead resuscitations or traumas or where I can run pods or where I can do all these things. And they're just cognitive activities, right? They're, and they're probably the high level skills. So there's nothing stopping me from doing that. And I can examine patients by myself. I can do all that stuff. But really the value that I think we can add maximally is cognitively. But we need people who see it that way. And I think that is really where it, I think if we try to hold on to these ideas about, okay, being a doctor is about a chest tube. I don't think that's really it. CPR was another one, right? Like I've talked to quite a few medical students who are like, oh, I can't do my placement because they're telling me I need to be able to do CPR. But like how many doctors perform CPR? I don't a- think I've ever performed CPR, to be honest, because... You're right. Like it's usually other members of the team doing it. I've done lots of different things like putting in IV lines and working the defibrillator, but I have not once actually done CPR on a real person. (laughs) Exactly. And someone needs to be running the show, right? Yeah, totally. Which is quite interesting because I quite like doing simulation training. I think at the beginning I found it really difficult. So for our listeners, simulation training is when we have a fake patient with a fake medicin with simulated observations and we do a practice run of a resuscitation situation, which I found really difficult at the beginning. But since I've got into it, I'm like, this is great. This is great for our practice. And what we do in simulation training is we do like little fun drills sometimes, right? Where we like make the person who's the team leader, like we blindfold them because then we make the whole team work on their their communication, you know, stuff like that. So if you're the team leader, which is usually the person running the show, which is probably the most stressful job, you don't need to be doing anything. It's literally a hands-off job. There's literally nothing stopping someone like you from doing that. <laughs> In fact, it is encouraged that you don't get hands exactly, on. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So there should be nothing stopping you from being an emergency physician. Yeah, and then technology. So the technology is amazing. I've got a handheld ultrasound. I've got... Oh, wow, you can so ultrasound. Much. Oh, wow. I, yeah, I, I, I find that hard, but <laughs> well <Yeah>. done. <laughs> it's, we use voice recognition. So there are now some nurses and doctors that use voice in our department. But in my first year as an intern, I was seeing 25% more patients than the average intern. What? How uh, are you doing yeah. that? What was, what's your tips, man? I need some tips. Just, <laughs> but it was just technology and streamlining things. I had to think about things a bit differently. How but, did you do things to make it more efficient? So I thought about everything from the history. So when I talk to a patient for the listeners, taking the whole story, I had a template in my head and uh, I would have a template on the EMR and I would, I could just type it in quickly and fill it all up really quickly. And then I thought about how I'd approach a bed and was very intentional about examination. So I know like I start here, tick, go around. And how wheelchair just, accessible was your emergency department? It's pretty accessible. Yeah. It's a new hospital. So I think that was also a good ingredient because it's a very accessible hospital. 
So it makes a difference. But all these things made me quicker. And these days I work nights and I supervise. Yeah. And when you're working in the emergency department and you're seeing these sick people, what's their response when you come in your wheelchair? Okay, this is the coolest thing. So we're seven years, seven years as a doctor, and then I had two years as a student in the hospitals. Never has a patient said anything to me, ever, not once. Thousands of patients now. Would you believe like that's crazy? I thought even one, and I think that shows that our community is further ahead than the profession. <laughs> These days I've had patients try to seduce me and ask for my autograph. <laughs> 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 the famous Dr. Palipana. <laughs> but no, and I'm, you know what? I'm so honored and I'm so thankful to the patients. And they remind me every day of why I'm there, which is for them. And have you been looking after patients who've got significant disabilities themselves? Yeah. And I remember one, and this was a moment I will never forget. It was at about 1 or 2 a.m. when there was a patient with a significant disability. And she said, I'm so glad that it was you who came into this room because I knew you'd understand. And, you know, like those moments are the best. They're so good. And what do you think the main things are that the majority of the profession just don't understand about people's disabilities? I think we just need to remind ourselves, whether it be people with disability or not, about why we're there. We get so caught up in all these ridiculous things, like whether it be professional territorialism, bureaucracy, paperwork, all the machinery of the practice of medicine. But I think at the end of the day, we just have to remember that we're there for a human being. And when it comes to disability, like everyone's different, right? Everyone is different. And our job is not to treat a disease, but to treat a patient, not to treat the number, but the person. Absolutely. And to help them get the life that they want. Yeah. So, yeah, I think we just have to remember that. So you're the, the first person to have in Australia to have graduated medical school while using a wheelchair. Is that right? Second, second, second. Yeah. Do you think that there's like an issue of representation within medical school with people with disabilities? Because if you had your spinal cord injury before you had gotten into mm. medical school, do you think there would have been a difference in the outcome of you actually becoming a doctor? Yeah, I think it probably would have at the time. So here's a cool thing. I was in a particular city in Australia recently, and I got an email from some students in a particular university at that city. And they said, we'd love to catch up because we're medical students who have disability. And we had a coffee. There were three of them, and two of them used wheelchairs and one used crutches. And one of them said, I had a spinal cord injury and then I saw a YouTube video of you and then I realized I can do this too. They're from a different country and they came all the way here to do it. Wow. So I think it's starting to change and some universities are doing great jobs. Griffith, I'm biased, but Melbourne University is doing amazing work. Notre Dame, Deakin is starting to do some work. So this is so good and that they see the value in it. My my heart is warm. Oh, that's really good to, to see because I know that it's so different having a lived experience and we want to have a health workforce or like any workforce that's doing public good should have a good representation of the people that we're actually caring for. Totally. 
Because I'm sure we obviously we do want to have lots of doctors who don't have disabilities, but we also want to have doctors who have had experience of chronic illness or disability or other sorts of adverse experiences. For example, being from an immigrant family and all the trauma of that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Totally. And it's our business, right? It's like saying, okay, we have a pilot who has never been a passenger in a plane. I don't know how you'd feel about that. <laughs> During that time period of rehabilitation before you came back to medical school, how easy was it for you or how hard was it to access supports for accommodating your disability in the community? Because I imagine you need things like equipment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was hard. Now Australia has the National Disability Insurance Scheme. So that's been a huge social change that covers everything with that and that's been massive for people. So what is, what is that? Because in New Zealand we have this thing called ACC, so I don't know if it's any different. So it's essentially a federal scheme that provides things like care and equipment and even housing to people with disability. But you have to pay into this insurance scheme? It is taken from tax. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it, the revenue for it comes from the tax so that you're covered. And I think that's been one of the biggest social changes that the country has ever, and it's probably one for the world. It sounds similar to a, ACC. Yeah, with the Accident Compensation Corporation, which has been around okay. for a while, which is, yeah, everyone who earns money or doesn't earn money gets to use it if they have an accident that causes a disability or chronic illness. But if your disability comes from not an accident, then you're screwed, which is a separate story. But in New Zealand, it creates this divide of who's deserving of care and not. Because, for example, if you have cerebral palsy in New Zealand and you have cerebral palsy due to a medical cause, such as a brain infection or unknown cause or from prematurity, versus if you have cerebral palsy from, say, trauma or birth trauma, you get two different like levels of care. So if you have it from trauma, then you get ACC funding and you get funded more funded like cares and carer support and things like that. So we have this like two tier system, which doesn't really make any sense. So if you have a chronic illness in New Zealand that causes a disability, you don't get covered from this ACC. But if you have a disability because you've, I don't know, fallen out of your roof or something like that and you need to go off work because you've got a significant injury, then you get covered. So it's, it yeah, it works if you had an accident, but not if you didn't. <laughs> no, I think we're covered for, we're covered for most, if not all circumstances. We should totally have expanded ACC access because one of those things is that's been up in the news in the last couple of years is like birth trauma for women. So birth trauma for women is was not covered under ACC because if you have a tear, um, an expected outcome of delivering a child, whereas things like overuse from working hard manual labor jobs or whatever is covered under ACC, even though some might argue <laughs> that's like an expected outcome of labor jobs. So it doesn't make any sense. Mm. We should just cover all disabilities. We should just cover all the things that people need to live a good life, is my opinion. I agree. I agree. <laughs> yeah, I think we're lucky. But when I was going to medical school, there were state-based systems, but it was not as comprehensive. So it was a bit of a struggle sometimes. And I just remember applying for all these scholarships to try and scrounge together all the money I could. And I remember Rotary once got me a new wheelchair. So shout out to Rotary. And, uh, but it was hard. Yeah. Amazing. 
So what is lying in your future? I've been thinking about this a lot. I started flying planes again last year. What? You fly so, planes? Yeah. yeah. So how, to get the Pisces. How many hours do you sleep? I have a friend and colleague who's a sleep, she's a sleep expert. And she's, she'd be probably horrified about my sleeping habits because I, I tend to clump them together in certain days. I'm like, okay, I'll just sleep all day that day, but then sleep not much the next day. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah certainly not. Yeah, certainly not consistent. But I want to squeeze the most out of the life I have because, you know, I, I also know that it's so fleeting and tomorrow's not guaranteed. I could have died in that accident. I've got to make the most of today. So what, are there any like modifications that you have to make to be able to fly the plane or you're all good? Pretty straightforward, actually. It's just the <laughs> rudder pedals that they made into a hand control. Yeah, I Easy. thought you'd need way more. Yeah, it's not too oh, bad at all. Anyone can do it. Anyone can do it. <laughs> <laughs> What yeah. else? What else is happening? What about, what are you doing for your medical training? Medical training is chugging along. I'm actually doing, I'm with the College of Rural and Remote Medicine, which with emergency. As so you school. could both be the doctor and the pilot, That's exactly right? right. That's I actually, could just imagine, I can picture it. You like flying your plane into the middle of the outback and then getting out in your like all terrain wheelchair and then saving some lives, <laughs> putting in that chest tube. <laughs> I would love to do that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that that's flying. We got spinal cord injury research. So I have a spinal cord injury research lab here at Griffith. We do a lot of work around spinal cord injury recovery. So that's a big goal. This morning, I got a message from a TV producer who said they're looking at making a TV series out of the hey. book I wrote. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What's the name of the book that you wrote? Stronger. It's called Stronger. Stronger. Yeah. All right. Sounds like a good read. I don't know. There's a handsome guy on the cover, so must be all right. <laughs> I'm just so grateful for life. I'm just so thankful. I'm so grateful for everyone in my life. I'm grateful to my mom. I'm grateful for every opportunity I have. I'm just stoked. I'm just a happy guy. That's very inspiring, especially Thank in you. these times where I'm like, oh my God, I'm so burned out. Everyone is so burned out. It's nice to, it's nice to see someone who actually enjoys their job. <laughs> But I think I don't think I could ever do just medicine. Like I think this is why I have to do the podcast yeah. and why I have to do everything else because nah. I think you have to do all the other stuff. Otherwise, just being a doctor doesn't really make it doesn't make sense. And then I think you do it more for the love of it that way yeah. as well. I yeah. agree. Absolutely. Okay. It was really lovely to meet you. And I'm so glad that we talked about how disability affected you, but also like how it's made you probably a better doctor for it as well. And it's really great to see that actually being in a wheelchair, having a spinal cord injury, that doesn't stop you from being a doctor. It doesn't stop you from achieving your dreams and having a happy life. And one day being a happy dad, hopefully, which is really yeah. exciting. <laughs> so one last question. What is your biggest guilty pleasure? The Simpsons and ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> At the same time, different yeah. times. Yeah. Okay. Do oh, you have a favorite so character, a favorite yes. episode? I think Homer is just hilarious. Like, the early seasons are really good. So I, I love it. And ice cream. I, gotta, I really got to watch what I eat. I'm uh, very disciplined. I have a very limit of what I eat every day. But I have found a low-calorie ice cream, which means that I can indulge a little bit and still be okay. So, What flavor? 
chocolate or oh, yeah. Yeah, any yeah. other flavor is just rubbish. Because I, I'm lactose intolerant and I think it's probably gotten worse over time as I've Ooh. avoided lactose. And so I have to be really careful about the type of ice cream that I eat. Otherwise I get a sore tummy. But then sometimes I'm like, oh, there's such limited non-dairy flavors. But sometimes there's like a good chocolate sorbet and I'm like, yes. Yeah. Or we have this like brand called the Duck Island, which has really good coconut ice cream. So Ooh. shout out to Duck Island. Maybe they'll sponsor the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out. Oh, shout out to Jim Bod. Jim Bod is the... <laughs> Jim Bod. Is that the yeah. name of the ice cream? Yeah. Jim yeah. Bod. Wow. Yeah. So maybe Jim Bod can sponsor the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you so much for coming on Rob Obingdor Syndrome. No worries, Nina. Thanks for having me. It's thank been you. so good to chat. Revolving Door Syndrome acknowledges Māori as tangata whenua and to titi to your Waitangi partners in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We recognise the inequities and challenges faced by Indigenous and vulnerable groups and acknowledge our duty to work towards closing the gap. Uh-huh.